You're listening to the Manchester Vineyard Podcast. We'd love for you to join us. To discover more about who we are, where we meet, and how you can connect with us, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description. Guys, good morning. Do you know, um, hold on, let me just find this. We, we just sang uh, our holy commitment in body and spirit to honour you, Jesus, as Lord our love and affection, our time and attention. And um, the whole time I couldn't quite help but be captivated by the way the light is shining on the bottom of the screen there that just looks like a crown. And uh, well, let's just pray. Jesus, I just pray that you are crowned this morning. King of kings, Lord of lords. Our commitment, our affection, our lives, all that we are, all that we do, is spent on you and you alone. And I pray for all of us, Lord, wherever we come, however we come, that our hearts are stirred, our affection is stirred, that the part we see, we see a greater part. As Steph said this morning, Lord, we just want to have an anticipation. We want to come with a hunger and a desperation and a longing. Lord, would we make much of you this morning? Amen. You know, I've, I've been doing a, a series called Empowered Church, and some of you are thinking, oh, I didn't even realize it was a series. I just thought that was just church because this has gone on for so long. And uh, uh, like, man alive, will this thing ever end? Well, uh, hopefully today is that day. I say probably because you never quite know, but it was my plan to finish today. But just to, to round it off, kind of before we jump in, I just wanted to share um, a few <clears throat> general reflections with you. And um, some of you will love this. Some of you will wonder what on earth I'm going on about. But if I was to give this talk a name, I've called it a love and a shove. Um, I, I love you and I want to shove you as hard and as far as I can into Jesus. And uh, we want to be an empowered church. We want to do the stuff that Jesus did and we want to do it in the way that he did it. Now, the interesting thing, I guess, obviously, with that is we all have slightly different starting points, and whether we acknowledge it or not, we will all have experiences in life that have shaped us and cost us. Some of them will be good, some of them less so. Some of them actually will be really quite challenging. And they all come into play when we start to be formed and gathered as a community. And um, <coughs> do, you, do you remember... Um, at school doing exams. Some of you are going to have to dig slightly further back for that than others. Some of you are thinking, actually, I'm still doing exams at school. But um, uh, it was, I would say it was quite a while ago for me. Some of you are now thinking, well, not so compared to me. But occasionally, I still have dreams and I have flashbacks, and I get the panic of, you know the little tables you sat at? Ours were like double tables, and we used to have these cardboard dividers that if they weren't folded right, they fell over, and everyone looked at you like you were, you were cheating, but whilst they were down, you were kind of like, well, you know, this is a free-for-all. Um, but anyway, it was like the clocks and the, the seating positions, and the, the, again, it's wasted on you, but it's like the record of achievement. It's the, like the whole thing was like, oh my goodness, like I still get the dreams about it now. And then there was this guy, um, Stephen Turvey, and I know none of you actually know Stephen Turvey, but before we even sat the exam, Stephen Turvey, like I knew and he knew, our whole class knew, all of our teachers knew that Stephen Turvey was like a straight A's guy. It was just going to be A's. Whatever he did, it was going to be A's. And in fact, it wasn't, I don't know if it still works like that now, but like O-levels, A-levels, whatever. But uh, Stephen Turvey wasn't just straight A's. He was A-stars. It was just the guy that he was. And uh, I remember sat with him on results day. Let's not even talk about results day. What was that all about? Panic for that thing. But um, because you were like, in your head, my record of achievement isn't going to be good enough that I will amount to anything in life if results day isn't good. <clears throat> anyway, Stephen on results day is crying. And I'm like, mate, why are you crying? I'm just glad this thing is done. Like, let's go and now enjoy our summer and have a life. And, and, and he's got all A's. Actually, he's got all A stars, but one of them, just one of them was an A. And this guy is in tears. And um, I'm like, mate, <laughs> what? 
Anyway, do you remember the people who, who, who would come out of the exam once they'd done it and they'd be like, I nailed it. Absolutely brilliant. I bossed it. Absolutely, like pen down, out to go, head on the table, leaning on my arms, no problem. Bossed it. Results day, some of them clearly hadn't bossed it. I don't know if you remember those people. The reality was on results day was loads of them clearly were a long way further from what they thought they were. But then there was the, the people who came out of that exam room and they're like, I did so bad. Like, so so bad. That was bad. That was like car crash bad. That was horrific. That was awful bad. That was a disaster. I can't even talk about it. I'm not going to talk about it. Stop talking about it. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about it. You're talking about it. But okay. Then there's the people, I can't even remember her surname, but Zoe. She, she came out and she literally just said nothing. And I, I don't know what that was. She was either quietly confident or it was just like the panic attack of like, what have we just done? She didn't say a word. And I'm like, are you, are you all right? Is everything all right there, Zoe? Are you all right? Nothing. Just like glazed look. And oh, I think we need to, someone help her quick. But anyway, what, what, what we do and what I want to say is, have you ever found that we, not quite like that, but have you ever found we do that kind of thing as a church, that we compare ourselves with others, don't we? So there's clearly those that you would say, they're like bossing it in the relationship with Jesus. They're like the Stephen Turvies of the relationship with Jesus. And therefore, mine's rubbish. Like, why do, why do I even bother? I, I can't even go on. Or like, mine's so bad. My relationship with Jesus is so bad. It's all over the place. Honestly, it's not. Don't be hard on yourself. Don't, don't come out thinking you're doing badly when actually you're just giving everything you've got to this thing. Stephen Turvey, such high pressure and expectation on himself. His whole thing really actually probably just came down to what his dad wanted for him rather than even where he was at. He was doing phenomenal, but he had this pressure and expectation and the burden. Sometimes I think that happens where we start to build this pressure and expectation of what we think others think or what we think others think we should be doing or living like or, or like the Zoe's where actually it's just easier to keep it all in your head. I, I can't share it. I don't want to share my life, who I am, where I'm really at with anyone else because they wouldn't understand anyway. And actually, they haven't experienced what I've experienced. I'm just going to keep it to myself. Comparison is so dangerous. And I just want to love us and shove us and say, look, we've, we've got to run in our own lane. Not that we don't do this as a we thing and it becomes an I thing, but you've got to stay in your own lane. And you've got to be aware of your pain and get in your lane. If that's where we're going today, it's be aware of your pain, get in your lane. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of my pain. And I've got to stay in my lane, and I want to say a similar thing to you. Here's a stat that I've made up, so you're never going to be able to find the results of it. So please bear with me, but I think it's roughly right, but it's only roughly because I made it up. I'd say 80% of our pain is our pain, and the other 20% is where that then collides with somebody else's. Now, that makes up what I'm calling another made-up thing, a painometer, right? If ever there's such a thing or a word. Now, the painometer affects how you see the world and the lens and the viewfinder through which you have. Stephen Turvey's pain was his dad's expectation of him and then his perceived expectation on himself. I'm not. I'm just a failure if I don't, if I can't. Now, there'll be stuff in your upbringing, in your marriage, in your workplace, in your relationship with your children, in a work dynamic, in something someone said to you, in the way you look, in your bank balance, in your health, in your job, in your lack of job, whatever it is that will affect your lens and it will affect how you see yourself and therefore how you think the father sees you and it can cause your painometer to go up quite significantly. And when you bring 80% of your pain and your expectation and lens and understanding of that, of yourself, and then that collides with others and it collides with church, all of that is going to slightly shift and increase the painometer. And I'm not saying you have pain and I don't have pain. Honestly, I have pain. I've spent my life trying to work through my pain and get it on the table before Jesus and be open and honest about it and not then let it leak out into everyone and anyone and try not to let it actually get in the way of me fully stepping into advancing the kingdom of God. Pain doesn't count me out. I just have to be aware of it and acknowledge it and helpfully try and deal with it. I have to acknowledge 
the fact that it's there and the only place that I'm going to find healing and freedom and restoration is in the arms and the face of Jesus. Now, it can be jolly tempting, maybe this is just me, but it's jolly tempting to try and sort it out even subconsciously in any and every other place. Or can I just tell you about, oh, you didn't even ask, but I need to tell you about my pain. Oh, it's, it's Black Friday. Actually, if I just buy a load of stuff, that's going to help it go away or like a little house project is going to distract me or relationship or whatever it might be a friendship that's the thing that's going to sort it we can chase it anywhere and everywhere but the place it needs to be and the only place that we're going to see it set free is in the arms and the face of Jesus you know this last week I had a very narrow window of opportunity to pop to B&Q I love going there but I just needed like a couple of things and uh, Steph was out and so was at a dance class and I had a 25-minute window. And uh, I got there and lives in the trolley. I put her in the trolley so I could push her faster because we've got to be fast and it should be a bit slower if not. And I got to the aisle that I needed to be on and I'm like dropping things into the trolley. She's not in the kid's seat, she's in the trolley. She just loves it, like stuff's just piling up around her. We're not even buying it, I'm going to have to put it back. She just loves stuff in the trolley. And then I'm doing like the, the trolley spin thing and I know what's happening. Some of you are like, you're that person. I am that person. Uh, she loves it. I just like spinning around as we go and other shoppers are looking at me like I'm going to report you but it's like the cheap Alton Towers of like it's cheap Alton Towers basically anyway three or four quick spins in a row I've learned and she's screaming in delight we're on track we're going fast it's like push and spin and we've got to keep moving because I've got to get back to Soph and the clock is ticking and we get to the checkout and I've forgotten my wallet and I'm like oh, what have you done have you ever done it it's like awful experience but it's okay because I've got Apple Pay but then I realized. A very warm welcome to you. Um, just uh, a couple of things Pete just said. Firstly, he called himself Peter. Uh, I'm like, he's Pete, but I realize some of you may know him as Peter. Secondly, uh, Pete said, uh, the offering's coming around, please give to it. And we just had a quick chat about that in his extroversion excitement that came out as that phrase. Uh, he probably means it a bit, a little more gently than that. Um, we, I, we love what you give, and we love what you give to the city, and we love the people we are, and everything that we do and is, is um, facilitated through the generosity of our collective hearts aligning with that, but please feel no pressure to give to the offering. We just had a little joke about it. I was like, I was gonna say something. Um, just wanna have a little conversation this morning around uh, prophecy. And uh, we love hearing from God, but doesn't even saying it like that feel a little bit unachievable for many of us, like prophecy or hearing from God? I know some of you straight away, uh, the, the, the honest reality is most of us will then start thinking, well, we, we, I don't, we don't. And therefore, you therefore think, oh, actually, others do it better than me if I don't. And therefore, we, we look at ourselves and we, aren't feel, we don't feel like we're doing very well with it, so we kind of give up. Do you ever feel like that? It's like that horse in the ditch of they do, I don't, therefore I, I give up. And I just wondered for a moment if you could almost like score yourself on a, not out loud, just in your head, nobody's going to know, just at like on a, like a one to ten, where would you put yourself? Now, this is an absolute, I'll give you like three seconds to do that before I move on. But this is a completely made up stat Again, I'm quite good at these. But I think most of us would go under six. Is that fair? Like, if you were to scale yourself hearing from God, you'd probably go under six. Therefore, if most of you would go under six, some of you would go over six. And therefore, for the under sixers, you're thinking, actually, there's other people who do this better than me. They're the superstars who hear, therefore, I don't hear. Oh, you're really good at that. So I'm going to leave it to you because I'm really bad at it, so I'm just going to crack on with everything else. Does that, does that make sense? I think some of you would find yourself in, in that place. And I just want to unpick that a little bit today. But before, before we do, um, I just kind of want to expand hearing from God to beyond just us. Because the danger is we start to think this is like a thing for us that we do in a church context. But the reality is it increasingly needs to be understood and sit within our mandate to reach outside of the walls of the church. Often we see the breakthrough of this thing outside of ourselves. And uh, we want to hear from God, but we want others to hear from God and hear about God. Uh, many of you, I guess, will have seen the news this week uh, just 
numerous media outlets carried it. I just want to read the BBC headline that I read said this, less than half of England and Wales populations Christian census 2021 shows. Actually, a number of the news outlets carried a similar theme in a very negative way. And um, I, I think personally that's something probably all of us have known for a very long time. There is a nominal Christian or the realization that actually for many people in our society, identifying as a nominal Christian has very li little benefit and they don't want to be labeled as the cultural Christian when they see no reason to do so. I think that has grown and it's grown significantly. 46.2% of the population ticked the box to say that they would identify as Christian. I actually personally think that is phenomenal to be honest, in our day and age. I realise it's portrayed as negative. I'm like, oh, wow, that's significantly higher than I would have put it. There was some research a number of years back that identified that 6% of the population would identify as actually practising living out their faith. So what does that mean? It probably means about 4 million people are passionate about the lost, about serving the poor, about partnering with debt counselling and so on and so on, actually actively living out their faith. Now, what I find fascinating about the research that I was reading is that about 45, this is nothing to do with the census, but um, I was just reading some research said about 45% of the population were willing to tick a box to say that they believe in the resurrection. I'm like, hang on a minute. There's a load of people that potentially would identify as a Christian. There's a load of people that actually say they believe in the resurrection. Surely that's quite a, a big deal. 54% of people would believe that Jesus was a real person. Again, don't you think that is phenomenal? So the majority of those who tick the Christian box in the census may not attend church, but clearly there is an openness among society and the history-defining moment of the resurrection isn't that far from them. Many of them already believe it. They just haven't had that activated as a lived-out reality in the community of people following Jesus. Now, on the census, there's a 13% drop in those that tick the Christian box. I don't necessarily think they've gone off to follow something else. They've just now been honest about they were never actually pursuing that thing in the first place. 12% tick the no religion. That's about 22 million people, but 27 and a half million people tick the Christian box. Now, I don't think that necessarily means the same to them as it does when I tick it, but surely there's an openness, and surely we have a phenomenal moment and opportunity in our lifetime if we seize it. Now, if you've missed it, what I think I'm trying to say is potentially a significant proportion of the population in this country believe in Jesus as a person, and a very large percentage of them actually believe in the resurrection. Now, many just aren't convinced by the conversations or the lack of conversations that they've had that would progress that into an active living relationship with Jesus. Again, some research I was reading was saying that one in three people would, would, who would say they're non-Christian would actually be open to a conversation about Jesus. One in three people. Isn't that kind of staggering? As we head into Christmas, honestly, this is our moment. I, I wanted to share this, but actually somebody just shared with me this morning, almost like prophetically, that this they felt this was a word in season for us. Isaiah 9 says this, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace his government and its peace will never end his rule he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor david you know there's a almost a sense in this room that we're living in a time and a season of like global conflict and turmoil and many of us even personally need to know and understand and receive the truth of that word the goodness of god the peace that rests and flows from him to us. We want to understand that. We want to grasp that. But actually, we want to share that because we know that. We have him. We have the hope and the life that comes from a living, breathing relationship with him. And we get to share that with the people around us. And we don't want to miss the opportunity of that. I, I know these are 
hard times, but I actually find it really fascinating that some of the leading missiologists at the minute are saying that the current spread of the gospel and the growth of the church is the fastest currently in Iran than anywhere else in the world. A people that are going through significant opposition and persecution. 40 years ago, they reckon there was about 500 followers of Jesus in Iran. Today, 40 years on, that's now spilling over into Afghanistan and they reckon there's around a million. Surely we're living in a time where we do actually have and know a degree of freedom and an opportunity to share it. Why, why am I telling you all of this? Because I think on our doorstep in our lifetime, we have this significant moment to share the gospel into very, very fertile soil. And we've got to rise up with a longing to share it. Ultimately, that means planting churches, but actually it means planting our lives living out all that we are and all that we carry because we live in such fertile soil. One in three people would be open to the conversation if somebody would just share it with them. Now, I think there's, uh, Pete kind of mentioned it a bit, I think there's a number of things that would really help you with that. Beer and carols is, is kind of basically beer and carols. Nobody's, nobody's going to hijack that conversation with anything else. But often the gospel spreads just in relational community fellowship for want of a better word like when we come together there's something remarkable and powerful we've asked a number of people this week hey do you want to come to beer and cows they're like of course they want to come to beer and cows because it's such an easy thing for people to be part of i'd encourage you uh, the following week so next sunday the carol service every year somebody says to us if i'd have known it was going to be that good i'd have invited somebody like it honestly will be that good who's on your whatsapp facebook messenger whatever it is however you chat with people just go through it and invite a load of people invite neighbors friends family colleagues whoever it is we invite people into these moments of like the pantry with 422 and we invite people into it like come and help us serve this city come and help us meet some of the needs we want to awaken some of the god-given god-birthed compassion that sits in our souls and invite them into being part of that story because we love to give people environments in which they can know and explore and hear something of the truth of the life of jesus we've got to we've we've got to show him but to show him we've got to know him and we've got to know that we know him. And that's kind of the context to why I want to just talk a little bit today about hearing from God. What is prophecy? Why do we even try and do this thing? So let me jump in with that. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1 says this, Let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. Some versions use the word eagerly desire. It's like this actually is something, we're supposed to desire this thing. We're supposed to have a heart and a hunger for this thing. I think um, prophecy could be defined as a human report of divine revelation. Prophecy is almost like the speaking forth in merely human words of something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. And all genuine prophetic ministry is based upon or flows from like, this revelation from God. But, but what does that what does that mean? Because I think for some of us, we're like, oh, that's, that, that's, not, that's not for me. Well, I, I find it helpful to contrast the experience of receiving revelation with that of actually something that is just quite normal routine experience or something that is serious, trying to get involved as well. Something of the, the routine experience, like a, almost a moral conviction or just some kind of revelation just that comes through the, the step-by-step discipleship process with Jesus. And in Corinthians 14 verse 3, I think Paul says that prophecy is given to the church that it might experience a number of things. And those things are like the building up, the comfort, and the encouragement of the church. Now, we have to be really careful because sometimes the problem we encounter is virtually any time a person is instructed or, or built up or encouraged in their faith or someone shares something with them along those lines, that, that we can both be inclined, the person giving it and the person receiving it, to call it prophecy. And that then somehow, I don't know if you found this, as soon as you use the word prophecy, it just becomes quite a big deal. Like straight away, it's like, woof, here comes the prophecy. Have you found that? Maybe it's just me. I just, I see it that way. It kind of elevates the significance of the word slightly beyond the ordinary. And it becomes like, whoa, we've got a prophetic word that's just landed in the room. So does, does that make sense? Or, or the, the, the 
the prophetic suddenly just becomes like a heavy thing that then becomes an unachievable thing or a thing that I go, well, that's you because you're prophetic. I'm pathetic. Have you ever done that? I'm like, that's just, this is just not me. But in uh, Ephesians 1, 15 to 22, Paul kind of says, and he prays for the Ephesian church, and he asks this. He asks that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowledge of him. And by this, he kind of means that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so that they might understand with greater significance and force the clarity to which he's called them, he's called us, to hope in Jesus. Now, I don't actually believe that Paul is praying for the gift of prophecy in that passage, although prayers for prophetic gifts or insights are, of course, welcome and something that we long for. I think he's simply praying that the Spirit would, would bring wisdom and insight into the immense blessings that we have and we find in Jesus, as well as the hope that we find in his life, death, and resurrection, and all that that has brought to us. But I don't think that all revelation is the sort of spontaneous discovery or the prophetic that, that is in mind in 1 Corinthians 14.30, where it says this, but if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. Now, there's obviously context to that, but I just think there's a difference in the way these things work and the environments in which they're brought. The Holy Spirit can reveal things to us and reveal something in, in the sense that he can illuminate our minds and enlighten our minds that we might understand greater truth that before might have been obscure or remote. It's almost like as if, if, this, if the Spirit of God, if you can imagine this, it's like walking into a room and suddenly someone turns the lights on so that you might more vividly see the furniture that's in that room that was always there. It's just you're able to see it with clarity in a way that you couldn't before. And it at least enables us to maybe enjoy something that was there that before was slightly foggy or obscured. So Paul uses the word revelation in this way, and he does it a number of times. He does it in Philippians 3.15. He says this, Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. He's describing people in the church at Philippi who have embraced an opinion that is different to the apostles. And he doesn't appear to limit one or a particular doctrine or truth, but he says, and if anything, sorry, if and in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Don't you find that a profound, beautiful truth? It's simply Paul's way of assuring them, and I think assuring us, that God will enable us. God will enable believers. God will enable those that are longing and hungry and searching to properly respond to the inspired word of God, to the letter in this case that Paul is giving. We see a very similar thing in 2 Timothy 2 verse 7. Paul doesn't use the word reveal or revelation, but he says this, to think about what I'm saying, that the Lord will help you understand all of these things. That the Spirit of God, the Father God, helps us understand things. Now, what is involved in this giving of understanding? What is the actual process of this thing? Well, if, if I'm honest, I don't think we fully know, but I think we can make quite an educated guess. I believe Paul is saying very much the same thing he said in Ephesians 1 and in Philippians 3, namely this, that the Holy Spirit works mysteriously in our minds to shed or illuminate the meaning of truth. He works within us to enable us to see something that previously was foggy and bring it a de degree of clarity. Now, why am I at absolute pains to try and explain this and unpick this with you? Because what we're seeking for is a criteria or means through which we can know the difference between a spontaneous revelation of the spirit that forms the basis of a subsequent prophetic word and the often normal, routine, quite common work of the Spirit that sometimes just enlightens and convicts and reassures us, comforts us, strengthens us, and, and all of those kind of things. And I think there is a slight difference. Does, does, I hope that makes sense, but what I think is going on is I think most people would score themselves 
on that one to 10 pretty well on the general sense. Yeah, I've got a general sense of what maybe the Lord would say or speak or how he'd encourage me. But they'd score themselves so much lower when it comes to what we then might call prophetic revelation because we back off and go, well, that's for the, that's for the prophets. But actually God has made himself known to us. And what the Bible does is reveal himself to us so that we might love him, know him, serve him, and fall greater in love with him and actually take steps towards our own discipleship. Now, this general revelation, I think we find it in so many places. Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. There's in, there's, there's in creation itself the testimony of God. Now, I would say, I think many of you would say this, I've found that regularly. There's something about the magnificence of creation. It opens my heart, opens my mind to understand more of the source, something of the creator. Sometimes you might be in a place or a space and you just get the wow factor of God. Now, within that, genera- sorry, within that general revelation, we have consciences which are, allow us sometimes to discern and know and understand what is right and what is wrong. And I think, again, that is actually engraved in us by God. We can do damage to it, but it's the thing that God places in us. Romans 2 verse 14 says this, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it even without hearing it they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right there's this thing that's embedded in us to know right and wrong and as we continually seek to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit actually that just increases I think it's a thing that's birthed by the Lord now another part of this general revelation I think is actually embedded in us as God's continuing providence among us so Acts 17 verse 27 his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel that way towards him and find him though he's not far from any of us for in him we live and move and exist. He provides signs to us that point us towards him. Does that make sense? I think that's something that he does and he unlocks in us. Romans 1 verse 20, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see the invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature, so that they have no excuse for not knowing God. Again, I think I could ask a number of you and you'd say you found that. I've definitely experienced and found that. I'd have moments in my life where I'd look back and I'd go, hang on a minute, I think God was trying to get my attention. I think there's something more than just a natural set of circumstances. Now these moments, I think, always need something slightly more. We don't just want to leave them there. I almost see it as like a, it's like the divine carrot that's been dangled in front of you to, for you to go, hang on a minute, I'm not just going to stay here. I'm going to tumble into something else that's going to lead me on a path towards Jesus. And of those powerful moments and experiences, again, I would say I've had, I've had of God in those moments, something that sometimes has actually surpassed my head knowledge in him. It's gone beyond anything that I've known and I've almost had to play catch up. I've had to go, I'm not just going to stay with an experience, I'm now going to pursue that and understand it. It's got to be grounded and it's got to be rooted. And without the Bible, we, we, we can know little for certain except some kind of vague idea that something somewhere, somehow made this universe and it made us. However, God has not just left us with that, sorry, without special revelation that reveals more about who he is and how we can live and live with him in harmony. That general revelation often prepares us for specific revelation. And I believe that should always be rooted in the Bible and it can often and should regularly be communicated through the Holy Spirit. It slightly troubles me when we just go for it on the Holy Spirit side and we don't anchor it in the word. Now, I'm not trying to underplay the role of the Holy Spirit, but I think everything we do should always be rooted and anchored in the word. So when, you, when, when we get the, and it's not that this is wrong, but it's like the Lord has told me, and it's not rooted in the word. 
oh, I've, I've had this dream, I've had this idea, or whatever it might be, and it doesn't align with scripture, I think we're walking into dangerous territory. Because God reveals himself through the things that he does, and God revealed himself through the Bible. Why has God given us special revelation? Simply because he wants us to know him. He wants us to know ourselves. He wants us to know the way of salvation. He wants us to know how we're meant to be. There is a tremendous amount of knowledge about himself, about humanity, about salvation, about the best way to live, about how he wants us to know him and know ourselves and the way of salvation and, what, and the way that we can live with him and in relationship with him. Jeremiah 9.23 says this, This is what the Lord says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. <coughs> Jeremiah. To Jeremiah, God declared that he wants all humanity above else to know him above all the riches all the strength all the worldly wisdom god wants us to boast in knowledge of him he wants us to have relationship with him and that's why god has revealed himself to creation to humanity through his word god's specific revelation his word that is recorded in scripture is sufficient for salvation. It's sufficient for God revealing his way to eternal life, as well as being sufficient for leading and guiding the believer into the sanctified life in which they can live. Paul writes to Timothy, he says there's 2 Timothy 3, 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has made himself. He's made the way of salvation. He's made the holy life known through his specific revelation to humanity nobody's left guessing about who god is when they read the bible no one can claim that the way of salvation is hidden if they take time to read his book and no one can claim that they don't know how they should live if they study his word god has given humanity a special revelation that uncovers all that he wants us to know who we are the way of salvation the life of being saved the life here and the life after here a final thought on the Bible comes to us in the writer of Hebrews. He says this, Hebrews 14, verse 12. For the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the divide, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. The Bible is God's voice speaking to us. It's not just a collection of dead words on a page. It actually has life that in itself is transformative. But living words from God that shows us who we really are and above else, what we need. The Bible is God's personal message to each of us and it's the most important message we've ever been given. I think we do really well to pay attention to it and if anything, seek it out all the more to speak into our lives through the words that he spoke many years ago. Now, some of you will probably be wondering right now, why are we talking so much about the Bible when I said I wanted to talk about prophecy? Well, the reason is this, because one flows out of the other. So often we try and go this alone. We try and just do the spirit thing. Actually, the spirit flows from the word. Trying to discern and hear the whispers of the Holy Spirit are always going to flow from the grounding in and a love for and a sensitivity to the word. We can't just stop with the Bible. We have to live out what it says. You don't, you don't actually, I say you don't. I'm just thinking about it. My kids do. Well, they don't anymore, but they did. I was going to say you don't go to a restaurant and eat the menu. 
But have your children ever done that? You just eat paper. It's like a weird thing. But you, you don't go to a restaurant and eat the menu. At least I hope you don't. You go there and you use it to, to help you discover the meal. It's supposed to almost give you the outline and the parameters. And I think, I'm not using the exact example, but I think it's a similar thing with the Bible. It's meant to give us life. It's meant to give us action. We don't read it and stop there. Actually, it's meant to help us discover something more of the heart of the Father that causes us to step into the fullness of that relationship. God speaks to us through all of the means that I've mentioned, but it doesn't just stop there. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this dynamic, and sometimes I actually think it's quite startling. Some of it is actually quite confronting. The way that God speaks is through dreams, it's through visions, it's through almost inner impressions and the, the angelic and tongues and the interpretation of them, words of wisdom, words of knowledge, the discerning of spirits, preaching, teaching, witnessing, prophesying, circumstances, even personal experiences are all ways through which he speaks and God continues to speak in a number of those ways, through dreams and visions and prophetic utterances and the like. And he did so even after Jesus ascended to the Father. Sometimes there's a danger, we go, that was then. It's actually once Jesus had ascended, Stephen, Philip, Cleus, Judah, Silas, we can go on and on and on. Philip and his four daughters experienced angelic visitations, dreams, visions. It's kind of littered throughout the book of Acts. Philip's experience in the... With the Ethiopian in Acts 8, I'm not going to read it now, but it's kind of quite remarkable. Like, sometimes we've got to grab hold of this thing and say, hang on a minute, there's an angelic visitation, the Holy Spirit speaks to him directly, and then he's transported away. Actually, we should have a longing and expectation and a desire for greater things and greater understanding than sometimes we settle for. Now, I know for some, this can frighten us off because it starts to then involve subjective experience but I want to say we shouldn't shy away from that we've just always got to find its rooting in the bible we always come back to the truth of the word which is why I was kind of at pains to point that out but I think the bible clearly teaches us to expect revelation from the holy spirit Luke 12 verse 11 and when you were brought to trial in the synagogue and before the rulers and authorities don't worry about how to defend yourself or what to say for the holy spirit will teach you at that time, what needs to be said? The Holy Spirit is a teacher. He reveals things to us. Luke 21, verse 14, so don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I'll give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. So if we're longing for him to speak, <clears throat> can I just finish by just giving you a few things that I think would be helpful to think through both for you in terms of stepping out in the prophetic, but also for you in terms of weighing the prophetic. We shouldn't just take stuff without actually reflecting and weighing it. We need to use the safeguards that I believe the Bible gives and actually gives us plenty. I'm just going to pick up on a few of them. The first is this. The Holy Spirit's primary mission is to glorify the Son. John 16, verse 14, he will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. It should always point us towards Jesus. The prophetic should always be a greater revelation of Jesus. Any dream, any vision, whatever it is, it should reveal something greater of Jesus. I'd say that's the first test. The second is this. It should conform to the Bible. Titus 1, 19, sorry, 1, 9. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with the wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they're wrong. It should always be in accordance with and in submission to the authority of Scripture. If it's just someone's thoughts and someone's thinking and it doesn't align with the truth and the revelation that comes from the Bible... I think we just lay it aside. Now, sometimes it's well-meaning, but if it doesn't align, I'm laying it aside. The third one is this. Who's delivering the word? Of course, we want to try. Of course, we want to step into being equipped and trained and practicing and experiencing. But actually, 
that the person should be of sound character and submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Matthew 7:15 beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmful sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is by the way they act. Can you pick can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce good fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. I think I said that the wrong way around, but you know what I mean. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you should identify people by their actions. Not in a judgmental way, but I'm often looking, who's sharing this word? If this is coming towards me personally, I'm like, how are they submitted to the authority and the accountability of the scripture of the local church and the leadership in the church? How is their life and their behavior aligning and stacking up? If someone isn't submitted to the pastoral oversight, if somebody's just becoming an independent, if somebody's becoming unteachable or a bit self-proclaimed, I'd say for me, if I'm wearing a word, the alarm bells are ringing. The fourth one would be this, the person bringing the word should be willing to have it tested. It's not an imposing of a word. It's a, here's the, 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 test it, please weigh it. 1 Corinthians 4, 29, let two or three people prophesy and let the others evaluate what is said. Pastoral oversight tests prophecy. I never just take a word or hear a word and then suddenly completely redirect my life without giving it proper thought or reflection. The fifth prophetic word should be given in a spirit of love. I think this is absolutely crucial. How many times have you seen almost a, like a prophetic word given and that the poor person came forward for some ministry and they go needing greater ministry? They go needing spiritual and emotional ministry because the word was imposed and it was forced and it was quite hard on them. Prophecy can be confronting. It can stir up, but it's supposed to encourage, strengthen, and, and, and comfort. And often, that's just in the way we deliver it. That should get us a long, long way, I would say, away from the damaging. The Lord has told me to tell you. <laughs> have, you have you ever heard that some of us have had that word? I've, I've heard from God, and therefore you need to. I'm like, we're backing the truck up with that one. It says, it is also peace-loving, gentle at times, and willing to, to yield to others. What we say, we say in love, and we say with love. There's care, there's concern, there's gentleness in how we approach something, and we seek to speak and to learn in love, first and foremost. We learn to do this. I eagerly desire i long for it even one of the kids this morning just shared a prophetic word that i think a number of us were like slightly blown away we long for this i desire it we long for the freedom of the spirit we don't want to stifle it but equally we've got to be careful in how we do it and these things can be so easily misunderstood and manipulated if it's embarrassing if it's negative Surely we need to reflect on what that is and how we might bring that. Do we need to bring it at all? Prophecy isn't used to control a person. We have personal responsibility and we should have authority in our own lives and in the lives of relationship of the church that don't undermine the pastoral authority collectively. The sixth of this, it shouldn't be used to establish a doctrine or a practice without some kind of clear biblical support. What do I mean by that? Well, 1 Timothy 6 says this, verse 3, some people may contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things promote a godly life. Some things, some words are outside the scope of what you necessarily may find or read in the Bible or in everyday experience doesn't always mean it's wrong, but it definitely means it's not absolute truth. When it's like, thus says the Lord, I'm like, really? That's where we're weighing things. Number seven, we shouldn't make major decisions based on a prophetic word alone. 
Have you, have you found that? Sometimes it can be tempting because we might be looking for the word. But I'd refer us to 1 Corinthians 14, 29 to 32. I won't read it now, but words should be weighed. Words should be weighed alongside others. Words should be weighed alongside pastoral responsibility within a church context. They should be weighed alongside the person who receives the word, the person who's maybe small group or whatever context it is. But words should be given in a way that sets up that reality. But says the Lord. I'm like, well, that doesn't really set up the reality of I need to weigh it. It's like, well, you're saying this is the Lord. If you read Acts 21, 10 to 14, a prophet warned Paul that if he went to Jerusalem, he'd be arrested. And the other disciples pleaded with him not to go. You're familiar with that one? It's worth digging out if you're not. Paul accepts the word, but he still went to Jerusalem and was arrested. People without realizing it can have ulterior motives in what they share. Doesn't always mean the word is wrong, just doesn't mean we always do what the word says. The last one, actually it's not the last one, it's the next to last one. If a prophetic word predicts future events, it should come to pass. I know that kind of sounds daft and it sounds obvious, but I've had people say to me and I've heard people say the end of the world is not. I still remember, like it was yesterday, the 29th of November, 1992 because there were prophetic words that the world was, was going to end. And it's not that hard to go, do you know what? I think you got that one wrong. <laughs> but what makes me slightly nervous is when you just keep hearing people say exactly the same thing on a new date. I'm like, the credibility is coming out of this thing because I'm, I'm <laughs> well, I think we all are, unless I've got just a mirage. I think we're all still here. But one, one final thing, this is number nine. I couldn't think of 10, so we'll stop at nine. Most prophetic words are invitations. They're not certainties. You know, and I think this is important. Jeremiah 18, 7 to 10. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. And if I announce that I will plant and build up a certain nation or kingdom, and then that nation turns to evil and refuses to obey me, I will not bless it as I said I would. I think we get, in, we get to step into the invitation of the Father. This is not a certainty, it's an invitation. And we want to be people that increasingly learn to hear, to understand, and to discern the voice of the Father. This isn't a special thing that certain people get to do. We all get to do this with increasing measure. John 10 verse 3 says this, the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they know his voice. And we want to learn and realize that we should learn to hear his voice. Why don't we stand together? I always appreciate some of you will be new in a room like this. So just... To explain what we're going to do, we're just going to take a few moments just to rest and wait in the presence of God. It might help you to do that, to close your eyes or remove the distractions around you. Because I believe he wants to speak to you. Not just to somebody else, but to you. So Lord, we welcome you. kind of alluded to it earlier but one of the kids had a word this morning that somebody asked them what do you think the Lord wants to do this morning and they said I think God wants to shatter the darkness I was like yeah he does I personally had a sense that um, 
there'd be like a moment of coming home for a number of you this morning. I wasn't just thinking about the, the football or like driving home for Christmas, but it's that sense of like, I need to spiritually be home. I need to be around a group of people that allow me to be me where I feel safe, that I can be vulnerable, that the Lord might do all that he wants to do. And I had that sense that a, a team of people were praying this morning. There was a number of words. Um, There's one about an, uh, nose pain, particularly on the left-hand side, about halfway up. It's almost like you've got a piercing, but you've never had a piercing. It's just an intensity of pain. There was one around... Um, the right side of a neck where you particularly uh, face dizziness. There was uh, one around uh, pain in the middle back uh, and around the front of that. You've got significant pain. There was somebody who uh, it was felt you might have a crisis with the words, the most high. It's almost like your understanding of God has become become a crisis. There was one around uh, just starting to speak truth over lies. Some of you even, I think the Christmas period can, can, can uncover some things. Like actually, you want to see truth spoken over you rather than some of the lies that you've held. My sense is that there are people here this morning who just come, you've come carrying pain, you feel um, bruised in many ways, and as Paul was speaking, he realised, maybe you or maybe others, realised that actually you have also been bruised in um, the way that people have spoken words over you and called them prophetic. Um, and so helpful what Paul was sharing this morning about making sure that that words are in line with and submit to the truth of Scripture. And so there may, may be some of you who you can acknowledge now, and it's only really now you're realising that some of the words that jarred with you, that were spoken over you in the past or maybe even recently, that you're realising, mm, maybe I took that when actually it wasn't really the Lord. And... Um, if that's you, we'd just love to pray for you because, you know, whatever the enemy means for harm, there's nothing that God can't overturn and turn and use for our good. So there's always, there's always redemption and there's always healing to be had. But I just want to kind of honour you. If actually you would acknowledge you are someone who has been bruised by words from God that were perhaps not actually words from God, um, and have been sort of had things impressed upon you unfairly. Almost, I don't want to go too far with it, but it's almost like some of you may have experienced a bit of a kind of spiritual abuse in that, and I really feel the Lord would want to reset that, call that out and say, he's not having it. And I just love, I love that there was a child in the church who said and knows and believes that Jesus wants to break through the darkness, wants to banish the darkness. What was the word he used? Shatter the darkness. That's exactly what he wants to do. So we're just going to make some space now for you to respond to what the Holy Spirit's doing, what he's stirring in you. Come forward for prayer. We'd love to pray for you. We'll make sure that you're not left waiting long. And if you're in a small group in the life of the church, do come and, come and pray for people as they come forward. Also sense that there's people in the room who you just, um, there's like an awakening in you of um, wanting to press into increasingly what, how God speaks to you. And so I just pray that over all of us now, that Lord, you will speak to us, each of us in ways that we can hear. You've made us uniquely. You've made us in your image. And you speak to us individually and in ways that we can hear. So, Lord, open our ears, open our spiritual ears, and increase your presence and your voice in our lives. Thank you, God. 
Yeah, why would you stand in? Some of you uh, who want to respond to that, why don't you come forward, come to the side so others can join you in prayer? It's never, it's never a spectator sport. Don't feel the need to see what someone else is doing. Just respond yourself to what maybe the Lord is nudging and prompting you. And as as people do, as always, let's not leave them long if you're in a small group where you join some of these guys you can just see such a sensitivity to the presence of God in the room as well it's not just people come forward there's people all around the room who'd love you to join them to pray with them it was a life transforming moment for me personally once walking into a church feeling lost and alone not knowing anyone somebody just came to me and said can I pray with you Thanks for listening. To find out more, head to manchestervineyard.org or follow the link in the podcast description.